Good morning to you. For two Sundays, we have been in 1 Corinthians 11. And last time we were together, we focused on the Lord's Day and things that get in the way. And this Sunday, we're going to shift from the Lord's Day to the Lord's Supper. Tragically, the Corinthian congregation managed to turn something holy and turn it into something profane. Instead of worship in remembrance of Jesus, they tragically turned it into a drunken buffet where the poor were humiliated and the Lord's name was desecrated. It was so bad that the Apostle Paul said their meetings did more harm than good. And it made one wonder, is this a supper to scupper or a time to remember? Maybe you can relate. Sometimes saints sort of cringe when they see the Lord's table set up that Sunday. They think, oh, this, this is going to be a long service. And they're put off by the supposed inconvenience. Others find the Lord's Supper objectionable because they feel like it sort of changes the mood of the service from what otherwise might be more vibrant and spontaneous to something more ritualistic. Now, in some churches, the Lord's Supper becomes a time of sort of morbid introspection and and spiritual dissection where we do a guilt-ridden autopsy of our current level of spirituality to see if we're worthy to partake of the Supper at all. Now, a few weeks ago, when we were tackling the front half of this chapter, we looked at hairdos, head coverings, and hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is the art and science of biblical interpretation. And in regards to hermeneutics, we established that the greater our number of observations of the text, the greater our accuracy in the interpretation of the text will be. And so in that regard, I want us to remember Rudyard Kipling's famous musing. He said, I keep six honest serving men. They taught me all I knew. And their names are what and why and when and how, and where, and who. All right. So these are the tools from which we tease the mysteries of any passage of Scripture under study. These are the tools of any good detective. And so in our time together today, I want us to get a clue about the Lord's Supper from Scripture, and I want us to use those very interrogatives as the basis of our understanding of this text. And so, I want to invite you to leave all of our our preconceived notions and conjecture in this endeavor at the door. All of our traditions, all of our assumptions that we sort of allowed to encrust over us in many years in the faith, perhaps. And I'd like for you to ask the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to inform us how to better worship the Son of God when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, that'll be our text today. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 to 34, is the Bible's clearest, uh, indeed longest, fullest teaching on the meaning and practice of the remembrance of Jesus in the Lord's Supper by taking of the, the bread and the cup together. So questions that we want to biblically answer are found in your bulletin today. If you open up your bulletin, there is an outline, and it will follow along of where we're going. And you're going to see that our six interrogatives make up our points this morning. We want to answer what, biblically, is the Lord's Supper? Not traditionally, not personally, not denominationally. What, biblically, is the Lord's Supper? Number two, why should we celebrate this? We do this, have we ever stopped to say, well, why? Who should celebrate the Lord's Supper? Churches have a lot of opinions on that. Open communion, closed communion, only members, a whole bunch of things. How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And lastly, briefly, with what elements should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And I'm hoping, how many of you have ever heard a a full-on sermon on the Lord's Supper? That's kind of what I was expecting. So that's why we're going to take one Sunday and we're going to look at this thing that we do all the time and ask ourselves, how are we doing biblically with this thing that we do routinely? And so as you turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 11, and that should be found on page 1218. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you, grab that Blue Pew Bible, page 1218. It'll take you to 1 Corinthians 11. And as we turn to the... 
word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word and ask Him to bless our time in His text today. Father, we invite You as the one who is the originator of the concept of a people of God. Uh, You created the heavens and earth. You said, let there be light, and there was light, and yet there were not yet light bearers, because all things were done by Your power and based on Your sovereign ability and will. And along the way, You chose to make us, and we made a mess of it. Given the really the very first chance to sin, we sin. In a perfect environment, with a perfect mate, with a perfect job description, we said we wanted to be like God. We wanted to be our own God. We wanted to do our own thing, our own way. And, and it brought great trouble and travail on this beautiful world that you created that was good. It brought trouble and travail within our marriages, within our relationships, within our societies. Truly, sin has brought its wages, which are death. Death physically, ultimately, but death immediately, spiritually, unless it's rectified by new life in Christ. And so I thank you that you sent your son as we move towards Easter in the next few weeks. You sent your son to put together what we pulled apart. That you chose to undo all that we did if we would put our faith in Jesus who paid it all. And I pray today as we look at the Lord's Supper that we would move past the ritual and the routine And we would look at the Word of God as it points us to the Son of God and the supreme sacrifice He made that we might have life and have it abundantly through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would get a really biblical understanding of the who's and the what's and the when's and the where's and the how's of the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one goes hungry, and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? For what? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. After the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so that, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, and if anyone is hungry, let him eat alone at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. All right, so our outline today is based on six interrogatives. And the first one is this, what is the Lord's Supper? What is the Lord's Supper? And we see this in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Okay, so the Lord's Supper is technically an ordinance of Jesus. Now, an ordinance is a theological term, meaning it's something ordained by the Lord himself. It's something Jesus instituted for us to do. It's not something the church invented. The Lord's Supper is sometimes called a sacrament in some circles. And, and, and there's an element where that's right. Um, sacrament, uh, in the sense of this being sacred, is right. It would be a fitting terminology. Um, this ordinance is sacred. Indeed, our word sacrament comes from the Latin word for sacred or to hallow. However, there's a problem. Over time, over church history, uh, as we've moved farther and farther from what Jesus instituted to what we start to do, the idea of sacraments in the minds of many has taken on a connotation uh, that is something different than what this text says. It, it, it has the idea of imparting grace on someone. That's what the common modern connotation of a sacrament means. And, and so it begins to make us think that if I partake of the Lord's Supper, that I'm somehow uniquely spiritually better. And that, that's not what 1 Corinthians 11 says at all. It doesn't seem to be the way the Holy Spirit explains what we're doing when we take the Lord's Supper. So what does the Scripture say? Verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, He took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He said, This is My body, which is for you. Do this so you might receive special spiritual energy and benefit. So that you might impart grace. Is that what he says? Not what he says. He says, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup. And after the cup, uh, after the supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it. Do it in remembrance of me. So, friends, when we think of what is the Lord's Supper, we need to think of, well, this is something that came from the Lord. Jesus started this on the night He was betrayed. This was not intended as anything to add special grace to us, but it was something we do to continually put our focus back on Jesus and His work for us on the cross. That's specifically what Jesus told us when He first instituted this supper 2,000 years ago at the Last Supper in the upper room. Jesus declared, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after the supper. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, the Lord's Supper is something we are to do because Jesus ordained it. Not because the church decided it. Uh, it's not something that we all thought that would be a really good idea. It's something Jesus instituted. It's something Jesus expects of His people to do. He ordained it not to make us better, but rather that we would better remember Him, and specifically His sacrifice for us at Calvary. That on our worship, we would always keep Jesus' uh, voluntary substitution, His gracious propitiation, and His astounding crucifixion at the very center of our recollection, why do we worship? We worship because Jesus loved us so much. He died for us. And indeed, He rose again to prove that it wasn't mythology. It was God overcoming sin and death. So, Jesus never intended for His church to, to degenerate into a meeting where we just go through mere rituals and, and, and holy routines. Uh, but rather, uh, we were to be a people who were unabashedly Christocentric. Church is about Jesus. And indeed, in one of the focuses of church, not only is it Christocentric, but it's also cruciocentric. It takes us back to the cross. At the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light. And the burden of my sin rolled away. Church is not about us as a social club or a moral club. It's about Jesus. And how he took the club that we wouldn't have to. Friends, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Would you be free from the burden of sin? Would you over evil a victory win? Well, friends, as we sang today, there is power in the blood. 
There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. So what is the Lord's Supper according to Jesus? Well, according to Jesus, it's a special time of remembrance where we refocus our attention in one direction back to the crucifixion and how it provided satisfaction and propitiation for all who ask for Christ to give them redemption. It takes us back to the amazing grace of our amazing God who amazingly did not spare His one and only begotten Son. And while we were yet enemies with God, God so loved the world that He sent this Son to die for us. And you know what? We can get really busy in church, programs, and all kinds of good things, and slowly push away the only really important thing. Amen? Friends, this is the Gospel, Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so Jesus asks us to, to regularly, corporately, intentionally pause and, and ponder, to continually rediscover with awe and wonder the glorious Gospel reality that in Christ we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So, so what is the Lord's Supper? It is an ordinance of Jesus drawing us back to the foundation of our salvation. It is a sober reminder that greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. That the Lord's body was broken for our iniquity. That He who had no sin became sin for us that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, when we gather together and we partake of the, of, of the cup and the bread, it should never be an inconvenience that the service is slightly longer. It should rather be a time of joyous reflection on the unbelievable revelation of the blessing that we are possessing because of through grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, we have salvation flowing to us because Jesus' blood first poured out for us. And that brings us to our second essential interrogative, point two in our outlines today. What is the Lord's Supper? It's an ordinance instituted by Jesus to remember His great salvation and what it costs to bring it to us. Number two, why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Why should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And Jesus tells us we should celebrate the Lord's Supper to look backwards to the cross, to look forward to the Lord's return, and friends, to look inward that we might understand we are simply sinners saved by grace. Therefore, it's Jesus alone who deserves all honor and glory and praise. And God does something wonderful in our lives. He takes us as sinners and He saves us and we're so impressed with that. And then when we're Christians for a while and we get a little bit cleaned up, we start to think that we're pretty special. Look at us. We're not like them. Have you heard that in Scripture? By the unredeemed Pharisees whose self-righteousness kept them from Christ. We have a little bit of that leaven in us if we don't beat it out. You know what beats it out? Three nails on a Friday. You were so great, you wouldn't need Jesus to die brutally for your sin. When, when we grasp that, that broken bit of bread and, and we hold that, that, that cup with the fruit of the vine, what are we doing? Well, we're looking backwards to the cross. Listen in again, starting at verse 24. This is My body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same way, He took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in My blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's... So, one of the things at the Lord's Supper, why do we do this? We do this to look backwards to the cross. We take the Lord's Supper to look backwards to the cross. But we also take the Lord's Supper to look forward, friends, to Christ's return. 
Look at verse 26. There's another why in our passage. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord in His death until He comes. See, (laughs) understand this, friends. Jesus didn't just die. He lived. As we sung today, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that He's living no matter what men may say. I see His hand of mercy. I hear His voice of cheer. And just the time I need Him, He's always near. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and He talks with me and along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives salvation to impart. That's the point. Christ died for our sin because we are sinners. You ask me how I know he lives. Well, my friend, he lives within my heart. There's a reason we still sing that, though it was written a while ago. But friends, not only does Jesus live, but Jesus is coming back. Jesus died, praise God. Jesus lives, praise God. Jesus is coming back, praise God. And that's why we sang a third song. You see, in this time of desperation, turn on the news and you don't feel very encouraged. When all we know is doubt and fear, there is one foundation. There is only one salvation. We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in the Holy Spirit. And we believe He's given us new life. Because we believe in the crucifixion. We believe that He conquered death. Uh, We believe in the resurrection and what's the last line? And we believe He's coming back again. When Donna and Donald defeatist visit your small group and give you the chicken little chorus, the sky is falling because coronavirus, politics, economics, North Korean missiles. Whatever. Understand that we have a what? We have a living hope because we have a living God and He is coming back again. Jesus tells us we should celebrate the Lord's Supper to look backwards to the cross, forward to the Lord's return, and then number three, inward. That we might understand, hey friends, we're simply sinners saved by grace. Looking inward to see, hey, I shouldn't think more highly of myself than I ought. I should think as Jesus has redeemed me. We see this call of looking inward around verse 27. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Word in an unworthy manner, I'm going to have to unpack that a bit today, will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. So there's this idea of self-introspection. We're not looking at our neighbor. We're looking at ourselves. And then so eat the bread and drink the cup. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we've judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So clearly there's some kind of introspection. There is some kind of reflection in this decision to take the Lord's Supper, isn't there? And that's going to bring us to our third interrogative today. Who should celebrate the Lord's Supper? Who should celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Scripture's answer is this. Any born-again believer in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't say you have to be a member of this church or any church. You have to be a member of God's church. That is, you have to be born again. The only unworthy way to take the Lord's Supper is if you flippantly diminish the glory of Jesus in this by ritualistically, mechanistically ingesting a cracker instead of doing it while reverently worshiping your Savior. That's the problem. Do this in remembrance. Look again at verse 27. Whoever, new Christian, long-time Christian, young person, old person, rich person, poor person, backsliding believer who's been battered and shattered this week, overcoming believer who's been walking in faith. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. What's that mean? We'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Okay, so it's something within me. 
And then, so eat of the body and drink of the cup. For if anyone who drinks and drinks without discerning, what? The body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. The, the issue isn't, am I holy enough? The issue is, am I doing this in remembrance of, of Jesus? And then God says, you know what? I discipline my church. I correct my church. And that's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That wouldn't be in the seeker version, right? <laughs> but it is in the Scriptures version. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so we may not be condemned along with the world. So the unworthy thing, according to the Word of God, is, 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 is to sin against the body and blood of Christ when we take the Lord's Supper. And we do this by not reverently worshiping the sacrifice of Jesus in that taking. We sin against what? Verse 27 is clear. We are guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. For anyone who drinks or eats without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So, so okay, the Lord's Supper is for believers. And that's why when we, we do the Lord's Supper, we say, look, if you haven't come to personal faith in Christ, just let the elements pass by you. No one's going to judge you. Um, the Lord's Supper is for believers. But it's not for believers to ingest ritualistically and mechanistically. It's to us to do worshipfully, mindfully, thankfully, at the tremendous sacrifice of Jesus in His body being broken and His blood being shed that we might have redemption. God takes it seriously when we take this flippantly. 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and eat of the bed and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks, what's that word? Judgment. And that's why many of you are weak and ill. That is, there is something on the spiritual end that, that because of their flippancy about something God wants us to handle reverently, it affects us bodily. They were weak and they were ill and some of them died. So, you know, the funeral director probably wants us to be very flippant and ritualistic. <laughs> it's good for business. <laughs> but the one who overcame death wants us to be joyous and celebratory and reveling in the worship of the one true God who loved us so much He died for us. And when we, we, we judge ourselves, well, then the Lord doesn't need to judge us. But if we won't judge ourselves, if we won't confess our sins, if we won't, then, then God will discipline us so we won't be condemned along with the world, the Scripture says. God is so committed to our holiness that if need be, He's willing to promote you. And there are some saints that are so stridently unwilling to walk with God, and He is committed, being confident of this, that He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's what the Scripture says. And so if you're a genuine born-again believer, you're, you're not a pretend friend, you're an actual possessor of Christ, not just a professor of Christ, that you have put your life in Christ, Christ is going to make you into the image of God. And some of you are going to be put on the elevator program. <laughs> Instead of walking the stairs every day, moving with the Holy Spirit, He'll just put you on the faster shuttle. <laughs> and You'll bypass all those floors, and He'll just take you right home. Because He's so committed to making you holy. Now, I want you to notice that the warning in our passage is primarily for the Christian. It's not primarily for the non-Christian. Uh, we ask unbelievers, yeah, just let the stuff pass by, but, but the warning is for Christians. Not to partake of the Lord's Supper thoughtlessly, indifferently, ritualistically, mechanistically. Uh, verse 30, that's why many of you, Christians in Corinth, were weak and ill, and some of you have died. But if we, believers in Corinth, judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We're to judge ourselves. You know who we're not supposed to judge when we have communion? Our neighbor. I didn't see him take communion. I didn't see her take communion. I didn't know you should be seeing anything but Jesus on the cross during communion. What your neighbor does is not your business. This is a time that's really between you and Jesus. Now, we're not Pharisees shining our phylacteries, looking to smack people because they have a speck in their eye while we've got a plank in ours. We ought to receive the Lord's Supper 
In the same way, we received the Lord. And how did we do that? We did it repentantly. We did it humbly. We did it reverently, didn't we? God has no need to judge us if we judge ourselves. If we stop being self-righteous and instead confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us. That's the promise to every believer. And so, looking to the cross, when I look to the cross of Christ, that should never make me feel puffed up. It should make me sobered up and humble. The cross never tells Sean Doyle, I've got it all together. And God is so fortunate that I'm on His team. No, the cross reminds me how much I need Jesus. And how glorious Jesus is that He would die for me. Is that what you see when you look at the cross? Or has it sort of just become ritual? Return and make it vital and actual. You see, friends, the cross reminds me of the bad news that the wages of sin is death. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because the wages of sin is death. But the cross simultaneously reminds me of the good news that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11.27 does not say we need to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say that. Preachers say that. Hey friend, if you needed to be worthy to take the Lord's Supper, you and I would never take it. You understand that? I've seen Christians who, who put their faith in Jesus Christ who won't take the Lord's Supper that Sunday because there's something in their life that isn't right and I come to the Lord's table, you come to the Lord's table, this passage tells us to come to the Lord's table to remember that I'm a sinner who has partaken of a Savior and praise God, I'm now in union with Jesus forever. He did it. I do this in remembrance of Jesus. If Satan has been whispering to you or to any other blood-bought saint who's put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, that you are too unworthy to take communion, I think you're probably missing the point of communion. You see, some saints sadly see the Lord's table and they say, well, that's not for me because I'm not sufficiently holy. If that was the bar, then no one would partake. That would be like a doctor saying to a sick person, well, when you get well, come back and let's talk. Or, or going to the bank to meet the loan officer and saying, I want to buy a home. And he says, that sounds great. When you get all the money, then I'll give you a loan. Or, or, or if you went to a chef and he was standing next to a starving person and the chef said, hey, when you put on some weight, I'll be happy to cook you a meal. Do you, do you see how we get stuff backwards? It reminds me of a story, a true story of a, of a woman in Scotland many years ago. And she was at a communion service in her church in Scotland. And the pastor noticed a woman weeping instead of taking of the bread and the cup. And that pastor, in the middle of his communion service, he left the communion table, which was not the way it was done, and he went and he sat next to that woman who was weeping, and he said, take it, my dear. It's for sinners. It's for sinners. Now, it's for sinners who've been saved by grace, but if that is your case, don't let Satan throw whatever in your face. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did it to save you. Instead, praise Jesus when you take it that he died in your place. Remember, his body was broken and his blood was shed. Why? To reveal the grace of God in our hearts. So we sang, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean. What did you do this week that makes you think that you're in trouble? There's a, a mighty ocean of God's love that can sweep away all the debris that your week brought into it. In its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of your love. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love always trusts. Love always... You know biblical love, right? Leading onward, leading homeward to your glorious rest above. Now, since that is true for me, and that is true for you, that's going to bring us to our fourth interrogative today. How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, we should celebrate the Lord's Supper reverently, humbly, 
and joyously. That last one is missed by a lot of Christians. We should celebrate it humbly. We should celebrate it reverently. But we should also celebrate it joyously. Reverently as opposed to ritualistically. We do this in remembrance of Jesus. Uh, Humbly remembering that our sin brought His death. And yet His love brings our life. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord. For God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Because the Father so loved me, Jesus amazingly died for me, so that now the Holy Spirit lives in me, and friends, the fruit of the Spirit in me is that I should now have joy. Love, joy, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Right after love is joy. In fact, the Scripture says, I can rejoice in the Lord. Always. It doesn't say when I'm good enough. It doesn't say when the situation is good enough. It says, I can rejoice in the Lord always. Friends, that always most certainly means when I celebrate the sacrifice of my one true King. Amen? Let us rejoice and be glad. If you've made the Lord's Supper a spiritual autopsy, I don't think there's a lot of joy in your remembrance. Whatever comes against me, The Bible says in the book of Habakkuk, hard to spell, but good to read. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, what's he saying? Nothing's going my way in any way today. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Do you come to the Lord's table reverently and humbly, but also joyfully. Because it's been my experience that saints aren't real good at joy when they take the Lord's Supper. Nehemiah said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Nehemiah had Sanballat and and, and all of his sordid companions. He had an impossible task. He was under-resourced and overwhelmed, and yet he had joy. Why? Because his joy was in the Lord. And it was his strength. The prophet Isaiah says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. That is, God has made me righteous. As a bridegroom adores his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with jewels. God has done this for us. He died for us to bring us to God to make us right with God, to make us righteous in the eyes of God. How can we not be joyous in this? You see, do this in remembrance of me. If you spend all your time at the Lord's Supper thinking about you and your sin, you're probably doing this in remembrance of of you. And that's not what he said. Because of Jesus, I'm able to make a sacrifice of praise. Until Jesus came into my life, Jesus says I never asked for anything in his name. But now, praise Jesus, I can ask and receive. And then Jesus ends with, so my joy is complete. That brings us to our fifth interrogative. In light of these facts, number five, how often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? How often should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Well, what does verse 26 say? Quarterly, if you don't have a business meeting. Actually, no. It says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. For as often. He doesn't say how often. He doesn't demand a a ritualistic, mechanistic, robotic time schedule in this. But he says, when we do it, that's the important thing. When we do it, we do it in remembrance. We must retain its significance. It must not degenerate into mere ritual. We must remain worshipful so that it vibrantly crackles in our worship. Now, some churches take the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. There's nothing forbidding that. They go to texts like Acts 2.24, which speak of the early church devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And they say, we think that means that we should do this every time we gather. Now, they don't always do it if they come back Sunday night or Wednesday night or a business meeting, so is it really every time you gather? (gasps) Because remember, we get real good at our legalism, right? Well, true Christians do this every time we gather. 
You didn't do it at the prayer meeting. Well, not that time. You didn't do it at the business. Well, not. You didn't do it at missions. You know what? We shouldn't have this discussion. <laughs> just be careful what true Christians do, because true Christians, just whenever they do it, they do it the right way. Many churches feel that if you celebrate communion every single Sunday, knowing the heart of man will sort of become callous to it, and it will become mechanistic and ritualistic. And so many churches say, we won't do it every Sunday. We'll do it frequently enough that it's important, but not so frequent that we become callous. Some churches say, well, you know, communion's kind of a logistical challenge. You've got to bring in people. You've got to break crackers. You've got to make all these little things the size of your church. You've got to go to the balcony. And so they say, let's do this, like, as little as possible. Because it's a hassle. Wow. That's probably not right, hey? That sounds wrong. Here at Calvary, here's how we do it. We don't claim it's the only way to do it. We don't even claim it's the best way to do it. It's just the way we do it. We've chosen to generally take communion, not slavishly, but generally, we take it the first Sunday of each month. Why do we do that? We do that so it's regular enough that we put the cross in front of us. At the very beginning of each month, we think about Jesus and his work for us in redemption. But we don't do it so much that we become remiss in all this. We also don't do it slavishly. There are times where, because of other things in the church calendar, it's the second Sunday of the month, and no one ought to have heartburn or a heart attack, right? Because it doesn't actually say in the Scripture. What's important when you take communion is that you do this in remembrance. That's it. That's it. And that's everything. And anything else is nothing. And boy, we make nothing into something until we miss everything. Because we're sheep. We need a shepherd. And there's a good one. And he laid down his life. For the sheep, which is the whole reason why we do the Lord's Supper. Are you seeing how all of Scripture folds back into itself? Okay. Now, we ought not look down at our brothers and sisters at other Bible-believing churches who may choose to do the Lord's Supper more frequently or less frequently. We ought to be only concerned that we do it reverently and joyously in remembrance of Jesus when we do it. And that brings us to our last interrogative. In that most Christians have never heard a sermon on the Lord's Supper, we thought we should probably handle all the questions. So I asked people, what are your questions? And people gave me questions, and I said, all right, let's try and find an answer, right? So the last question that people came up with is, with what elements should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Now, some churches, for the sake of convenience, have gone to an all-in-one plastic cup. Uh, where there's a, a, a wafer, I don't know if you can see that on the left here, but there's like a wafer just underneath the plastic, and there's another layer of plastic that holds the juice back. and um, It's like a hermetically sealed, self-contained mobile communion kit. Right? The germaphobes are like, I like that one. Um, unfortunately, one of the places I've heard this practice, so it's not everywhere. I'm sure that many wonderful people can have a reverent communion in this environment. I think if you're a military chaplain and, and you're in you know, the, the sands of, uh, of Afghanistan and you're trying to do communion with the troops, this might be your only option. That's fine. Um, but one pastor I heard who did it in a church did it in a way that I just really felt like, I'm not sure this is, this is getting at the point. He said, you know, rip it, dip it, and take it. I'm like... I think we're missing something. And I, I know it all rhymed, and so some part of the pastor in me liked that part, but the theology part really didn't. Because I wasn't sure it was reverent. I wasn't sure it was in remembrance. I, you know what I'm saying? Now, back in 2011, for those of you that have long memories, we just had a Super Bowl. Doritos and Pepsi ran a Super Bowl ad that got them in a lot of trouble. They had this ad uh, back in 2011 uh, there was this church that was struggling with relevance and it wanted to get a bounce in attendance and bring in the young people. And so it did communion serving Doritos and Pepsi Max. Do you remember that commercial? You, you can Google that. It's a thing. It's out there, okay? So they did communion serving Doritos and, and, and Pepsi Max. Is that okay? <laughs> Is that a good expression? And so it raises the question, with what elements should we celebrate the Lord's Supper? And, and what did Jesus use? He used bread and he used wine. That makes sense, because he's the bread of life. His body was broken for us. And his blood was shed, and the fruit of the vine, while different in viscosity, sure looks a lot like the fruit of the vine. And as you hold it in your hand, particularly as, as the cup, if it's translucent, and you see light coming in, you see the light coming in, but you see the darkness in the cup as well. And you know, I often sit here at Calvary, and, I, and the light streams down from our lights and goes through the darkness of the cup, and it creates a little bit of white in the center. 
and I've always thought about how the darkness and the blood brings life and light, and it's just, you know, visually, it says something to me. That's great. Many churches have chosen to use unleavened bread, and uh, that's probably what Jesus used at the first Passover, so they said, well, well, we'll use that. Then they get very haughty about churches that don't, right? Um, probably uh, that may best represent the sinless nature of Jesus' body that was broken. He was unleavened. So at Calvary, we generally use unleavened bread. But I've been in places where there is no unleavened bread. I, I've been in places like Zimbabwe where there was hardly any bread for a season and we still did communion. And so we used regular bread. If we couldn't get white, we used brown. If we couldn't, you follow what I'm saying? You used bread. Missionaries have taken the gospel to societies where they don't grow wheat. They eat rice or some root. How do you do communion there? Well, you teach them to grow wheat and you show them how to develop a greenhouse because it's the only way it's going to grow there. Oh, wait a minute, maybe not. They used whatever simple staple was available. And the same is true with wine, isn't it? This is where the Westerners start to part company. It would seem that red wine is, is, is uh, clearly closer in, in, in looks to, to blood. <laughs> Could you use white wine? Could you use rosé? <laughs> Maybe, I guess, if you didn't have an alternative. Most churches use red wine because it most closely represents the blood. Many churches use grape juice. Can you do that? Is that okay? Use wine. The same people that tell you Jesus used unleavened bread are real quick to hand you grape juice. Isn't that funny? Calvary uses grape juice. Why? Well, it has the same basic look as the wine, and that has the same basic symbolism as the blood. But we do have saints who, who struggle with alcoholism, and, and the smell or the ingesting of a small amount of, of alcohol for them might be a problem. So we work around that. Um, I've been in churches where they have two colors, and the light is, is the juice, and the dark is the wine. You take whatever you need. You desire. It's not really a big deal. Used to be we took communion from a common cup. Probably a lot of us in cold and flu season are glad we don't. <laughs> Logistically, everybody's got to come forward to a central thing and can be about who's standing in front of you and not, not knocking over somebody at the pew next to you. And so you know, so there, there's challenges either way. So the question is who's right? And, and you know what's really interesting? The passage doesn't say passage says, here's what's important. I want you to do this in remembrance of Jesus and his work on the cross. And so it would seem that, that the closer you can come to that which best facilitates remembrance of the body and the blood in the context that you have available to you, well, that's the best option. That probably means pizza and Pepsi are not going to be the elements, doesn't it? That's probably not going to best represent the body and the blood. Grape juice or wine, either seems fine. The most important thing is that we do this in remembrance of Jesus. That it's a time of reverent joyousness focused on the salvific sacrifice of Jesus for us. Do this, what's it say? In remembrance of me. And so to those ends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we've come to a topic today that almost all of us have some connection to. Even if we've never been to church before in our life, we, we've seen maybe a, a mafia movie where they took communion and somebody is doing something naughty and it's being juxtaposed against, against communion, perhaps, showing the, 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 the fact that there's a duplicity in the character's motive. Many of us have been to different churches and seen it done different ways, and we've, we've been startled the first time we've gone somewhere else and, and saw that, well, well, they had real wine, or they didn't have real wine, or, 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 or they had unleavened bread, or they had regular bread, or, or, or they ripped it and dipped it and whatever. Lord, we pray that, that you would help us to really focus on what Jesus taught, that we would do this in remembrance of you, that we would do this reverently, humbly, and joyously, that every time we do it, we would not do it ritualistically or mechanistically, that we wouldn't spend our time craning our neck to see who is or isn't taking it, and whether we think they're worthy or not. We wouldn't let the devil stand on our shoulder and say, well, you shouldn't take this. Well, friends, this is for sinners. 
And so if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are more than willing to partake of the body and blood because you've already partaken of the body and blood. This is just an outward expression of an inner reality, just as baptism is for every single born-again believer to testify to the world that the old man is dead and you've been raised to newness of life. Not because we've earned it and we walk perfectly. When we were first baptized, we were babes in Christ. There were so many things that needed to be worked out of us. And now that we've been in Christ for so long, there's so many things that still need to be worked out of us. But we believe your word. We believe Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion. And so the only question is, have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? Have I asked to be washed in the blood? Have I asked for his body that was broken to be my substitute for the sin that would otherwise leave me destitute and barred from a holy God forever? If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you know a bit about church, you know a bit about communion, that's not the bit that the Bible's about. God wrote a book, and the book was written that you might have life in Jesus Christ. And from Genesis to Revelation, every page follows a scarlet thread of redemption. From the first sin, there was the first sacrifice. Adam and Eve made clothing of fig leaves to cover their nakedness. The problem wasn't their nakedness. The Bible says life is in the blood, and so God had to give them garments of skin. Where did the skin come from? It came from living entities that died substitutionally to provide that covering until a time of cleansing would come. And all of the Old Testament was always the blood of bulls and rams and pigeons and all of these things, all of these offerings, because no sooner would we sacrifice than we would sin again and we would need blood again. And all of that was pointing to something greater, the Bible says. The book of Hebrews says the entire Old Testament temple ritual was pointing to an eternal heavenly reality that was fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that the blood of bulls and rams and goats could never take away sin. At best, they could temporarily cover it. But the blood of God's one and only Son, well, there's power in that blood. When the sinless one sheds his blood, Anyone covered beneath that flood, well, they lose all their guilty stains. The prophet Isaiah tells us in the Old Testament that our sins, though as scarlet, may be made white as snow. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament there's no other name under heaven by which we may be saved. And so if you're here today and you're ready to say, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I'm ready to give my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, then you can pray with me. In the quietness of your heart. It's not the magical incantation of how you say these words. It's the desire of your heart. The Bible says if you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and He was raised from the dead, and you confess in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you're asking Him, you're inviting Him to have sovereignty over your life. You shall be saved. If you want to do that, you can pray with me. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And I thank you that you loved me while I was still an enemy. That you sent Jesus to die before I was ever born. That you solved a problem I could never fix and you solved it before I even had the chance to mess it up. Greater love has no man than this than Jesus giving his life for his friends. And so I ask that I would be washed in the blood. That I would be a partaker of the bread of life. I ask that you would be my Lord, my God, the captain of my ship. I ask this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Transform me and give me a holy boldness to share about you with others. Amen and amen.